Hello and welcome to Arid Podcast. Arid is a raw, unscripted podcast offering conversations between an artist and a philosopher. In this podcast, you can expect us to uproot, unpick and redefine contemporary modes of thinking within the South African context. In each episode, we will do so by making eclectic use of various cultural text and theoretical disciplines. I'm Nicolene Berger. And I'm Jana Vosloer. And this is Eret. Today we have a very exciting topic. It's a little bit offbeat to what we've been discussing in our previous episodes, but that makes it even more thrilling. Um, so the question that we will be preoccupied with today is what are the, the philosophical implications of AI or artificial intelligence for our broader understanding of consciousness? And today we are joined with uh, what I would call a, a uh, AI expert or a philosopher of technology and AI, uh, Fabio Tollin. So Fabio is also a, a classmate of mine. We met in philosophy honors class and Fabio does a lot of things, but particularly he describes himself as someone who runs and who thinks. And I can vouch for that because Fabio really does run a lot and he is always somewhere in the mountains or in nature. So he runs and then he also thinks. Um, and he's specifically concerned um, with kind of in the field of philosophy of the mind and then also machine others, as he mentions it. But he's currently a doctoral candidate in philosophy at, not sure if I'm going to pronounce this university's name correctly, but Bielefeld University. And yeah, he comes from a background in PPE and then he did his master's in philosophy all at Stellenbosch University and now he's a, he's a PhD candidate. And he's also a part of a research group, <laughs> JRK2073. It sounds very AI, um, but it's about integrating ethics and epistemology of scientific research. So Fabio is really in that field. Fabio, welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to chat to you. That was a long introduction. But maybe you can just start off by explaining to us your interest in the general field of AI and how you understand that and your kind of why AI is also something that does not only concern computer scientists, but philosophers. So how do you see yourself as a philosopher in the field of AI? Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction and also thank you for having me. So I think to, to bring it back to how do we bring AI to philosophy? I mean, for me, the, the thing that initially got me interested in it was from a more like a data ethics perspective, which was, you know, we are generating all of this information as, you know, netizens, citizens of the world. And where is this information being stored? Who is using it? Um, and, you know, do we, can we have access to it? Um, and or should we be allowed access to it? So sort of issues of privacy and consent come up there pretty quickly. And I mean, that was my initial interest, but now we're seeing the use of AI systems sort of ratchet themselves up very quickly to being agents in themselves, right? These systems are no longer passive instruments used by data scientists to uncover patterns, but the systems themselves are now being used to do things in the world. Um, and I mean, you see these sort of dystopian futures with um, 
sex robots is one, I think, not quite, not really that absurd timeline, right? We can easily see how our own timeline could match onto something like that very easily. But we have full, full, fully embodied um, artificial systems that are capable of acting as agents. So my, my own sort of philosophical interest at the moment is in what are the differences or similarities between the way that we act as moral agents, as you know, flesh and blood moral agents, and how might machines act as sort of silicon-based moral agents, if we can you know, call them that. Um, are there interesting differences? Are there interesting similarities? And does it matter? Right? Does it matter that we are made of carbon and that we have you know, an embodied and very specially embodied kind of experience with a very special causal history, um, an evolutionary history? And is that important with respect to machines who would have a very different kind of causal history? That's very interesting. Yeah, because I think the, and the next point that we can jump into and um, that you've touched on now is that humans think of themselves as conscious and and now we are creating machines where we consider like consciousness might, consciousness might arise in the process of creating these complex machines. But now I'm wondering that we can't always understand what consciousness is. We know, we think we have it, we can speak about it, but we don't know how it arises. We don't know where it comes from. So this is kind of the harder problem of consciousness. And if you can maybe talk to us a little bit about what that is and how that features into AI and why it's important to consider that if we can't understand consciousness and we're creating these machines that might become conscious, I mean, what's the, the ethical implications of that? Cool. Um, yeah, the, the question of consciousness, I think, is, is one that sort of always arises when looking at AI. And I mean, even calling it AI as artificial intelligence is sort of a weird misnomer to me, because I mean, what is artificial about the intelligence? I mean, mm. a calculator performing a calculation and a human being performing a calculation, the output is the same, right, if it's correct. So what is artificial in the one? Um, and what I think people are actually tracking is this issue of consciousness. It's artificial because it's not really conscious in the way that we are. So real intelligence is conscious intelligence and artificial intelligence is, is intelligence minus consciousness. So it's kind of a negative claim, which is, which is weird. But to this, to this question of you know, us knowing that we are conscious, because I think that this is a really good starting point. There are two questions that emerge, right? The first one is sort of how come? So why are we conscious? And what for? What's the purpose of us being conscious? Now, my view is that if we've answered the what for, we don't need to answer the how come, um, which is not really a, I don't think many people would um, endorse that view. But what, what that means is that when evaluating our own consciousness, we should look at, natural, at evolution by natural selection on this planet and look at how such a complicated process might have emerged given those kinds of interactions. Um, so that's sort of the causal account. But to the more loaded, sort of harder issue, um, as, you've, as you've put it, as to how do we know we're conscious? Well, we introspect, right? That seems to be the first thing people would say is that I can't deny that you're conscious. If I say, no, you're not, your defense is, yes, I am. And I could, I could tell you as many times as I want, no, you're not. That's not going to change how it feels to be you and how it feels for you to be conscious. Um, so the first point is it's introspective. And it's difficult to tease out scientifically because it doesn't seem to conform to sort of the kind of criteria we would usually use in science. And if we want to use those criteria, then we'd have to look at your behavior, right? Because behavior is something we can interpret from a third person perspective. 
However, most people's intuitions are that if I just look at how something behaves, that doesn't tell me whether it's really conscious in the sense in which it feels like it is something to be that creature. So that is exactly the hard problem. It's the disconnect between looking at these behavioristic features and explaining them causally and the what it is likeness to be that entity, to actually really be that entity. And the way we go about it every day is through these behavioristic cues, right? We see other people behave in certain ways and then we infer that they're conscious, but it doesn't really tell us whether they actually are. That question is reserved for them. They have the authority um, to make that claim. Yeah, so that's interesting as it seems to boil down um, in basic terms between experiencing it, you know, it's a more phenomenological thing of how you experience experiencing <laughs> um, in a way. And where it's interesting how you say those lines become blurred between what we observe as experience and, and what we feel as actually experiencing it. So I'm curious then if, if you go from that point of departure, then where does ethics come in with this type of this distinction between artificial intelligence and consciousness and where does the problem of ethics then lie for you? So, so the, the, the most, I think the first thing to say is um, ethics sort of, at least up until this point has been the domain of human beings. We decide, right? That's how ethics works. Um, and we decide in very horrible ways often, right? Historically, we, we draw the lines sort of willy nilly it seems. Um, and then eventually, you know, I think this idea of progress is an important one. We do get better at demarcating what is or isn't or who is or isn't worthy of, of proper ethical concern. Um, but when you look at how we come to draw these lines, right, it seems like we're still using the same criteria. We've just, we just get exposed to new phenomena, which we then use to, which we then use that same criteria to describe. So I'll use an example. If you think of animal rights, Right? The, the condition for at least the philosophical foundation of um, Peter Singer's animal rights is that animals are sentient, right? meaning they can experience pain or pleasure. And we ought to not inflict unnecessary pain on creatures capable of experiencing pain. Therefore, we have a moral obligation to not unnecessarily harm animals. Now, that criteria applies just as well to human beings. We have the capacity for reason right, which might exist over and above our capacity for affect, but at a very basic level, we shouldn't harm creatures that can suffer unnecessarily. And human beings are creatures that can suffer, so we shouldn't harm them. So the question of ethics is, is central to consciousness because in a sense, if a creature is conscious, it is deserving of ethical concern because at some level we think that consciousness is tied to this ability to have effectively not neutral states of experience, right? So being sentient, seems to be a prerequisite for consciousness. And it's here that that artificial aspect of AI seems to rear its head. Because what seems to be happening is that, yes, this is intelligence, but it's not sentient intelligence, mm. right? So we started off with, you know, it's not conscious intelligence, but really what it seems to be tracking is that this isn't actually sentient intelligence, meaning it's not really worthy of moral concern. So there's a reason we don't have campaigns for calculator rights because right, that's absurd. We don't, calculators don't need rights. They're not the right kind of thing that need rights. But the question, I guess, that emerges here is, are those, those things that need rights, are they, is it a question of complexity? So if we bundle enough calculators together, like, I don't know, the size of China, and we get them to communicate with one another, 
and there's a lot of information processing going on, might that you know, Uber calculator be worthy of moral concern? Um, and most people's intuitions say no. Right? There's still something categorically different. And this is why it matters. Actually, no, that's part of why it matters. But the most important thing I think for me why this matters is that in the past, we have unjustifiably excluded others from ethical concern. And we need to be wary of doing that again in the future. And this, the question that's been sort of prompted now by um, AI is, are we going to encounter such a machine other and perhaps unjustifiably exclude such others from our moral landscape? So the cultural text we're going to be talking about today, and we're going to introduce it and really go into this, the discussion of it a little bit later, but um, something that just came up for me while you were speaking is the problem that a lot of scientists and thinkers that are discussing and thinking about AI at the moment are, it's a, it's a very small group of people that really understand the, the issues around creating this artificial intelligence and how complicated it is. Um, yet we as a society are going to have to cons consider ethics together and figure out together what is all right with regard to these new um, systems that we are creating. So that's very difficult because we, we struggle to understand consciousness. We struggle to understand how these systems are created but yet we need to consider the ethics around them. And, and in this movie as well, and even the person that created the movie, he also said that his intention was to start the conversation around these issues because he, as a film writer, also struggles to have conversations about this. So I'm wondering what you are thinking about the fact that we are trying to create something without understanding most of it, and then we're trying to think about how it's going to impact our moral landscape in the future. So that kind of back and forth working where humans are already going into the future creating something and they don't really understand everything about this creation while they're creating it. So, so one of the most, I think this, this is one of the first critiques of Charles Darwin, like as he published on the origin of species, someone basically said, a theologian said to him um, that what you're proposing is that you don't need a creator to build these perfect machines, um, i.e. like um, animals or human beings. There's no, you don't need a creator to understand how these systems come about. And it's, there's a similar thing going on, I think, with, with AI research in that it's not actually necessary to understand what artificial intelligence is fully in order to create an artificially intelligent system that could have very serious ethical consequences. A stupid example could be, so Amazon in 2017 used a uh, machine learning system to try and filter out uh, potential applicants for jobs, right? So to go through their CVs and basically like give them a long short list in a sense. Um, now it turns out the system was skewed to promoting uh, male candidates, right? And now the reason for that was because the system was trained on Amazon's historical data. So people in the past who had applied and who had made it through. Now, if you look at Amazon's historical data, I mean, you would think that history would tell you that men would be more likely to get through, not because you know, men are better, but because of sociological criteria, right? So the system was trained on historical data. And when that system was used, it reinscribed historical injustice. So in the same way, you could be doing machine learning and understand machine learning principles. But if you are not sensitive to historical or sociological information, you can end up using that system without really understanding what it is you're doing. Um, so you're right, there is this sort of tension between the two in that you actually need people who are developing AI to be in constant consultation with ethicists, but you need ethicists to be in constant consultation with those developing AI. 
like you say, this is exactly how um, with a lot of these type of, I want to call it abstract thinking regarding consciousness, it sometimes helps to to use examples and to see how they play out to prompt your thinking a little bit further because already I, I, my mind is going just from that interesting Amazon example, like it brings in a lot of pre-existing questions surrounding ethics that's already just in the in the domain of what would be called sentient beings and we see how even those lines are already blurred in for example animal rights movements and you know if you go from first and and you can trace it back like you say historically to how women were uh, were viewed or the ethical concern for for women or people of color and and you see those type of narratives and it becomes interesting to ask in what way is the question about ai a different one and in what way is it maybe a similar one a film together called Ex Machina I think that is how you pronounce it and um, it's it's interesting because um, so firstly we must say that um, we will be using this film to kind of guide us as a cultural text to further consider these questions uh, surrounding consciousness and AI and the ethical implications so this episode will have a spoiler alert because we will spoil the film for you if you haven't watched it yet um, so maybe it's a good idea to watch the film and then you can join us in the conversation afterwards or otherwise if you don't mind or I feel like a lot of the plot can still you can know the plot and still ask these questions so you can also just continue listening if you haven't watched the film and then maybe when you watch the film you'll have an interesting take on it but what I wanted to say is just it's it's interesting because it's a sci-fi type of film, um, Ex Machina, and in general sci-fi is an interesting genre to promote like critical conversations and Nicolene also mentioned the director Alex Garland used it in that way when he described it as an ideas movie. So while, uh, while like sci-fi type of films talk about this like future and like you say sometimes a very dystopian future it is also a mirror on the and a reflection on what is currently happening kind of in our own thinking and society and um, and in that way it becomes a helpful tool for us to think about where do we stand now with these questions and what does that say about us Nicoline, maybe do you want to say a little bit more just to introduce this film um, and then we can see how it goes with the conversation? Cool, yeah. So I think I'm going to introduce the film from my lens, which is obviously from art. So the movie opens with this very dramatic scene of a helicopter flying over this romantic landscape. And when I say romantic, it's not love romantic. It's in terms of the romanticism art movement. And what is interesting about that is that there's this tension between the romantic landscapes and the kind of lab area of the house and the inside of the house, almost like a cage where the study is happening. And I found that extremely interesting because the, the, the romantic artists, especially with regards to natural romanticism, were very interested in the sublime and that in nature and in interaction with nature is where man experiences God or experiences the um, incomprehensible. And, and, and they often depicted it as vast landscapes. So I was very intrigued by this and that, that Caleb, the um, computer scientist that is invited to study the AI and take, uh, be part of this um, test to see if the AI is conscious, 
um, he and Nathan, the developer of this um, AI, Ava, um, they go walk in nature often and then discuss these difficult questions that they really can't really wrap their head around and that function in the movie to prompt the fact that we don't really know all of the things that are involved while with consciousness while we are trying to develop these kind of complex systems. So I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, and then there's this tension between the creator as in God and nature, and then the creator, Nathan, that is creating the AI. And they often have conversations about the Nathan being like a God, developing something, being at the brink of creation. So I, I found that very interesting, that imagery. And I think we will go deeper into that, but Fabio, I wanna turn the question back to you with, through what frame did you view this movie and why was it interesting to you and maybe also in connection to this um, God and ego and the man as the creator, like you hinted at um, in the airing segment. I mean, I, I, I struggle with ideas of like having a lens when, especially when watching a film, like it's, it's quite difficult to, you know, I'm just, I'm watching a film, I'm trying to take, take it in. But mm. then upon reflection, um, I found myself obviously, you know, geared towards what I would call sort of machine ethics, right? Which is basically looking towards or looks at these artificial systems and tries to tease out the ethical and moral implications um, of, our, of our, like the way in which we use them. Now, what I, what I, the thing that struck me most about the film is sort of it's the uncanny way in which it subverts our expectations about machine others, in a sense, right? And I think Westworld was another, uh, another um, example of, of media that did this, in which, as Jana said, it, it doesn't so much make us consider machines necessarily but makes us sort of hate ourselves right that that's the thing that gets me the most about these 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 types of um, films is that you end up watching them and you feel remorse or hatred for your fellow person but you feel like the machine has been wronged in some very real sense right and, and that's how i think sci-fi can sort of flip the mirror back at us and that it forces us to confront our own treatment of whether it's a machine, but whether it's just other human beings. So the, the, the broad way that I think I, I sort of uh, approached the film was in, in light of that, right? It's sort of trying to understand whether machine others are actual others. Um, I guess that would be the, the overarching um, theme. But I like, I like your, the, the sort of starting with this romantic theme, right? Um, because for me, that contrast is quite important as the film plays out, right? You have these, you have the straight lines of the lab and then you have nature as like, you have, I mean, you have these cliffs, these rock faces, which, you know, they abhor straight lines. That's not how nature works. You know, everything is like powerful and mixed together, and, you know, forms of aeons. And then you have this complex that was constructed intentionally in, very, in a very specific way. And the contrast between sort of the, I guess, absurdity of that kind of thing existing in this kind of sublime environment. Once again, is the contrast between human flesh and blood moral agents and the seemingly alien artificial kind of intelligence um, that we see. Definitely, and, and something that I found really interesting was also when Caleb asks um, Eva to choose something to draw, she then, she first draws something very abstract. Um, in their testing with each other, they have these interactions and then 
she draws a picture and he finds it very interesting that she draws art and then he asks her, well, what, draw something else, but something real. And then she draws the garden that's in this kind of enclosed space in her room. And he has a very interesting um, reaction to that. And then again, there's a reference to the landscape and the inside of the lab where they discuss whether she will be able to experience blue and colors. And then at the end of the film, when she goes outside, it seems like she can, you know, like she walks out and it looks like um, she sees color and she experiences the, the landscape the way that they did while they were walking outside. So that was an interesting interaction between the inside and the outside of the lab. And we'll talk a bit about the Jackson Pollock painting as well and how it like is inside this very enclosed dark space. And then they speak about this vast creation on the outside. Yeah, it's... I mean, this film, it, there's an overwhelming amount of like analysis type of themes that you can draw out of it. And you can, I guess, like there's just all these different sub themes that we can indulge in this endlessly. Um, and I think we've touched now on this nature and the sublime. And there's a lot about God and creation, as we said. And then Fabio, something that you mentioned that I thought of now, so I just wanted to kind of say a disclaimer if we are talking very scattered about like all these different themes and ideas it's just because um, there's so many like fruitful points to to flesh out and and that brings me to the point of flesh so um, so Fabio you you spoke about this this difference also between the body and how the one of the first scenes when we discover Ava and, and for me another interest of or probably one of the most interesting characters was also Kyoko which we also see and that that touches on the more sex bot theme in the, in the film but we are constantly we are contrasted with this like machine bodies and and what you would call now the machine others and then the human bodies and how um yeah the flesh and the, the fact that when you see Ava she's at first she's you can see through her, you can clearly see how she is a machine um, and that you are dealing with a machine. And then it was interesting because I also heard this thing where Alex Garland says is he knew when he wrote the film that most people, most film watchers would cons would first just like make that connection of, oh, but maybe, maybe Caleb is the machine and Ava, like you just, you almost want to assume or like Kyoko must be a robot and you are, it, it plays that trick on your mind where you are trying to kind of figure out who do you relate with and how do you, can we really, it's that distinction you said in the airing part of like, how can we discern between the truly conscious and the, the almost replica of conscious behavior, if I can say it like that. So I thought we could, we could definitely tap into that. And it also reminded me, and this is maybe where my more feminist philosophy um, comes together with the philosophy of mind. It's that whole mind-body dualism thing in AI, once again, where we are confronted with, um, are they separate? And how Ava's character really starts using her body as almost a thing that deceives that deceives Nathan and deceives Caleb in, in interesting ways. So yeah, I'm I'm curious to think what you guys think about how how did you experience the the flesh and mind and robot and bloody aspect in this film? Um so I think sorry, I forgot to to touch on the man as creator and the God theme. Um which I'm sorry about so I'll do that quickly and then get into embodiment and then I think the idea of this this mind body dualism is really interesting especially in light of like feminist critiques of that just whole 
rationalizing project, that enlightenment project. I think it, it comes out quite, quite interestingly in the film. So the whole idea of this, uh, of, um, this kind of act of creation where we go from being, being created by a God to being gods ourselves in the creation of a new kind of life. That moment, right, is, is often portrayed as this sort of, it's like a gestalt switch, right? There is a before the moment and there is an after the moment. Um, and I think that kind of misses how often these things play out historically, right? Revolutions are often only revolutionary after the fact, right? Um, we don't know we're in a revolution until it's happened and we go back and look and say, wow, things really changed in light of that. So I think we can delude ourselves into thinking that in the development of AI, there will suddenly be this moment where ah, this X or Y is conscious, when really it's going to be the slow incremental thing. And that's why ethics matters, right? Because we can sort of, we can direct our energy into various um, directions. So I think the idea of us being these new creators of systems is interesting, especially from a psychological point of view. But I think it's something that we hype at the expense of really thinking through the ethical um, considerations of what's going on. Then to the whole embodied thing, right? <laughs> I mean, the best test for any of these things is um, like if you were to cut Ava, she would not bleed, right? That's kind of what it at, at its most crude level comes down to um, as, a, as a test, right? And the, the strange thing is, even if she, you could still argue that she could have the simulation of pain, right? Could have been, you know, um, coded into her so that if she were to receive some kind of trauma at a particular part of her body, it would be like she was in pain. But once again, we wouldn't have those, those external cues. But where I think the sort of embodied account, specifically looking at like Merleau-Ponty and that kind of embodied cognition um, and that literature, something about our history plays a role, right? If you think about the kinds of creatures we are when we come into the world, we are we experience the world through our bodies, but our bodies also mediate the kind of world that appears to us, right? So the fact that we have a specific kind of optic nerve that links to our brains means we can only see in a certain wavelength or a certain wavelength of colors is available to us. So other parts of the world basically don't exist for our perceptual purposes. So in the case of Ava, we could imagine her having a perceptual apparatus or an embodied experience that encompasses far more inputs than we could ever imagine. And there's an interesting thing that you can do there where you can say, well, if we're only experiencing like 60% of what's really out there, is it a moral harm to stop something that can experience all of what's out there from experiencing it? Um, does, does experience matter in, in that very sort of simplistic sense? But yeah, so the, the idea of this embodied account mattering, I think it, it matters for creatures like us who are raised in a certain way, who live in certain social communities where that kind of thing matters, where it might not matter for an artificial system. And then the last point about this mind-body dualism, I think it's something that struck me, right, is if you look at cases where people have gone through severe trauma and there's this, uh, the psychological harm that can occur is, is people bracket the trauma and like um, separate it from themselves. Right, so that some, some, someone else, the trauma happened to someone else, that's not me, right? And it's that kind of dualism that I, I think can operate at a psychological level when we look at artificial intelligence and the emergence of, I think, sex robots eventually. It's that 
human beings have the ability to carve up our own consciousness at some level, right? We can tell ourselves the story of ourselves that makes us feel like we are the most true version of ourselves, right? And the only reason we can do that is linked to my point on our embodied, um, the embodied state of our cognition. It's because we can cut off parts of reality. That is literally how our brains work. We, we have these little nicely sliced and diced pictures and narrative of ourselves. And the reason social media is so successful is that we can then present those narratives to others. So the, this dualism, I don't think is a metaphysical point. It's merely a point about how we come to carve up our identities. And this is where sort of the feminist critique can, can do a lot of work. It's just what are the identities that we want as a society and um, ethically to endorse, right? And how do we carve up those identities? Because I mean, Ava is a woman, right? That, that from a gendered perspective, we have a, a, a fembot basically. Now, does that matter? And I think Garland has said like, yes, it matters. And there's a point, there's a reason I did it, but why is Ava using seduction or sexual manipulation to get what she wants? Historically, male characters don't resort to that, right? They use intellect or force or power or whatever. So there's an interesting thing that, that happens there as well. Definitely. I think you said so many interesting things. So I'm going to kind of do the same and jump back to the creation God thing and then touch on Jana's question about the mind body and how I experienced it. But so there's this interaction between Nathan and Caleb in the movie in front of a Jackson Pollock painting where Caleb pushes Nathan and asks him, why did you create Ava? And then he says, he's very frustrated. And he says, well, do you know this artist? Do you know he made automatic art? He didn't, it's like random, not random, but also not thinking about it, kind of just throwing the paint around on the canvas. And then he asks Caleb if, if Jackson Pollock thought about making the paint, do you think he would have done anything? And then Caleb says, no, he wouldn't have created anything because it's, it's automatic art. You kind of have to, you have to not think about it. So this is a weird, interesting space between not thinking about it and thinking about it, like not being random and random. But what was interesting to me about that and the connection to the landscapes and the idea of the creator is that the abstract expressionists and Jackson Pollock actually created art in response to the creation of the atomic bomb. So um, artists after um, 19, or scientists after 1945 became more, they, they created these things that made them more like gods, that kind of had power to destruct areas and created this bomb without really knowing what implication it would have and how it would influence our society. And now we have them. And it's kind of hard to take them off the face of the earth now, you know, they've been created. So Nathan uses Jackson Pollock's automatic art to kind of justify the reason why he's spearheading this creation of AI and why he kind of just created Ava and is going ahead with her. But Jackson Pollock created the painting as a response to something like that, that already happened in our history. So I thought that was very interesting. And then on what you said about the programming pain, Nathan also says that Ava is able to experience pleasure. You can have sex with her. And then he emphasizes, and she will enjoy it. And there's this kind of emphasis on the fact that she will enjoy it. Um, but then later on, when, when he tries to kill her or stop her, or when he kills Kyoko, there's almost this idea that she doesn't feel that pain. So maybe he then didn't program her to feel that pain. So that was also an interesting distinction to me. And what Yana said about the flesh and the body and how I experienced this also, you see Ava and you see she's a robot and 
at some stage in the movie, she actually puts skin on her body to make her body more human. And then there's a scene where Caleb cuts himself, where it looks like he's going into this complete spiral and trying to figure out if he is a robot or if like who is a robot maybe I am the robot and then he cuts his body and he bleeds and for me as a viewer that was a very hard scene to look at I felt very abject feelings towards that scene but then when Ava puts on the skin which also has to do with the body and flesh I didn't have that reaction I didn't have that reaction if I can't look at how she's actually putting skin on her body but when he cuts into his skin and bleeds I couldn't look at that so there was also an interesting um, distinction between like the fleshiness and, and the robot and how we relate to the different kind of beings. And what I think is so interesting about that, especially that tension and that, like you said, in the, like we said in the beginning, how it, it prompted our response towards the machine and the human and how it blurred those lines. I also find it interesting how we now almost link the conversation of creation to the conversation of bodies. And when you spoke about creation immediately and how I then started thinking about the body as part of that. And that's an interesting thing where um, the creation point and the gender point almost comes together where he says, like they ask also the question, like where does gender reside? And, and that's that whole thing of, is it, created is it innate and you know all those <laughs> typical questions that people ask about gender but it was it was interesting how then you know this this Nathan character that is like we it's kind of he's kind of framed as the ego creator but almost in a way that like you say with the Jackson Pollock he's he's almost giving into the process of creation and and he's in this battle of like he's ego I mean there's that quote in the beginning where they say um they use it twice and the first time it's like if you create uh something like an AI you've created and it's a conscious machine it's not the history of man it's the history of God and then um and that's something that Caleb says to Nathan and then Nathan almost has his own swing of it where he just kind of says okay cool so I'm the God and he also refers to himself as Ava's father and and so he created her and when he talks about the sex and gender thing he, he calls it like her whole like she has a hole in her body so it's it's very interesting to make out of how that creative impulse also comes with what you said Fabio the historical construction of these ideas and how they are now like almost morphed together if I can say it like that so to the, the point about the Jackson Pollock um, that creating creating art in response to this kind of technological terminus in a sense, right? I think that's a very interesting idea because it seems like what we have here is the, the technology or the, the potential of the technology giving rise to a certain kind of art that is not possible before that moment, right? Because it's, it's a very distinct psychological state to know I can destroy an, I can kill an, I can kill a city with the push of a button, right? That psychologically, I mean, that's power. If nothing else is power, that's what power is. Now, I mean, is very, how you get more power than that is, is kind of difficult, but I think the next step would be to create another kind of life, right? That seems to be the next powerful step to actually design artificial life. But in, in, in that same breath, Pollock could only develop that kind of art in response to the moment, right? So once again, we are at this nascent point where we have not yet reached that moment, are creating art about the moment, but will only ever know what 
true art of the moment is after the fact, after we have really felt the psychological effects of it. So that's, I think, a very interesting conversation as well, that we are sort of both thinking beyond. That's why I think sci-fi is really good for sort of pushing ideas like this, because we both have to be here now, but also be in the future and imagine what it is like to be in that future. Then the, the, the whole idea of Ava not being able to experience pain and being able to experience pleasure, I think is fascinating from, a, from an ethical perspective, right? Because I think our ability to both experience pain and to experience pleasure constitute, like, I think our best and our worst traits, right? The fact that we can inflict unnecessary pain and suffering on others is the most tragic harm that one can perform. And we have done that in the past. And the fact that we can experience pleasure is the sort of morally speaking, that's the thing we should aim for. We should have the maximum amount of pleasure for the most amount of people. So these two sides make us what make us moral agents, right? The fact that we don't do the bad things and that we do the good things. But now if you take away the ability to experience the bad things, um, are your good things really that good? In a sense, right? That's that's kind of the the recurring question. You know, if if you were just kind of plugged into an experience machine, or you had like heroin, like mainlining into your um, into your arteries, and you're just in like a, a blissed out state, can you really be a fully functional moral agent capable of making moral decisions and being worthy of moral concern? Now, I think yes, you can be worthy of moral concern, but can you make moral decisions? Probably not right? Because you're, you're just experiencing one side of what it is to be a moral agent. And that, I think, raises another interesting question when it comes to AI systems that I'm not going to get into now. But basically, they might not be worthy, they might not be worthy of moral concern, but they definitely do make moral decisions, right, that can affect us morally. And that, the distinction between those two things, I think, is, is something we should um, keep in mind. And then the last point about sort of, I think, one could call it semiotic, right? It's about signs and stuff. I think like a semiotic analysis of like fembots and the, the actual visual representation of Ava is incredibly interesting because it, it conforms, I think, to a lot of stereotypical gender roles. And I think that was Garland's point, right? Is to make you feel uncomfortable with those roles and how they actually, how you can perform them so perfectly that you can manipulate members of our species into doing, into doing your bidding. Um, which is both, I think, on a superficial level, incredibly worrying that that kind of thing works and that we, be we believe the story, right? So we believe that it's possible for such a machine to manipulate such a person. But at a deeper level, it raises concerns about how we come to construct these identities. Because we, I mean, we can say that, you know, gender is this performance and it is constructed and socially mediated. But when we are the creators, in a very direct sense, that's very different to social conditioning. When we can decide what aspects to put into a system, then gender really does become a creation in this godlike sense. And and that's where the the um, interesting and that last point. And I want to touch on your previous points as well. But um, the difference between Kyoko's character and Ava's character shows exactly that. How Nathan chose to create um, Kyoko as she's mute. And um, and she's this kind of sex bot, and then he chose to create Ava in a certain way that she can use that as a deceptive tool. But then, what that also brings for me, and that and that comes to the question of the moral consideration and the almost moral framework that we use. And I have a lot of questions regarding 
that in general, like despite AI, the type of what we, what the, 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 the model framework that we use then, because there's still a lot of debate in our, and maybe that will be more like a philosophical debate of, but what is in the, the moral principles or obligation, and if it's a more utilitarian pain and pleasure, if we if we put that at the center, but I mean, there's so many other theories and, and that could, like if relational ethics, for example, was the one that was coded into these, these robots or AI, then how would that, how would the ethical, the ethical questions of the movie maybe play out differently? So what was interesting then for me is that how the almost that anthropocentric thing of projecting our understanding of ethics and morality then onto these robots and just, but then if they are truly conscious, how they can switch it around in, in, in unexpected ways. And that was the interaction between Ava and Kyoko uh, was an interesting manifestation of that, how almost they were coded to understand Lang, in the one hand, um, Kyoko was coded not to be able to speak, but that's not to say she doesn't have a different understanding of language uh, that could transcend what Nathan thought about in his framework about what language and communication means. Because at the end, I think Kyoko and Ava, they like touch each other and she whispers something to her. And that's then what actually leads up to the demise of Nathan. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious about that whole thing of projecting our understanding of or language or ethics or gender onto these then conscious uh, others or um, appearing to be conscious others and then how that can actually destabilize what we thought was maybe the question of ethics in the first place. And also maybe the like the fact that we're trying to create these especially in the movie now there's Ava looks like a human why does AI have to look like a human like Fabio earlier you said like these complex systems are already in our world they look like the kind of systems that helped um, Amazon get applicants um, or more complex even you know that's just the beginning there's these complex systems exist already but there's this direct connection and Jana you also said this when we discussed the um, movie initially like it's interesting that the God and the connection to being this amazing creator is because he is able to create something that looks like a human and functions like a human and we can't say if it's human or machine. So that was also interesting to me. Like if, if, if AI look, if she ever looked like something completely different, like a weird creature, um, would we be experiencing the same feelings that we're experiencing now? Yeah. So, so to the, to the first point about like this, this idea of having um, these pre-established moral frameworks be challenged by machines as we, as we invent them and, and sort of the reasons we give for our design choices. I think the first thing, thing that I want to flag here, which is I think incredibly important is the, the importance of design in AI systems, right? It cannot be emphasized enough that when we are designing these systems, we have to think through the intended and unintended consequences of, of them. And this is in a very practical sense. But in the sense of the movie, it seems like there were clearly intended consequences of design choices. Making an anthropomorphic AI mute means you do not want to engage in conversation or into the, the sharing of ideas or into the hearing of feelings of the other in question, right? So that's a design choice with clear ethical um, uh, implications. And what I think does become interesting in these cases is that 
the, the burden shifts from whether we harm or give pleasure to another entity, but rather shifts back onto us. And, and the question seems to be then, is this type of action morally repugnant or morally good, independent of whether anyone is harmed by it, right? And these, these kinds of questions seem to be, um, or that kind of question is, we wouldn't have historically have asked such a question. But now it seems like, yes, uh, you know, smashing a robot in the face with a hammer, if that robot looks like a human being, I, I can guarantee most people would sort of um, feel at least something, right? They, they would be like, this act is, there's something wrong here, right? And if we ratchet up sort of hitting with a hammer to other instances of abuse, it's clear that those actions would be um, sort of morally condemned. And I think this, this segues nicely into this issue of anthropomorphic AI, right? AI that looks like human beings. And there is, I know of a few people who argue that it's unethical, straight up. We should not be making AI that looks like human beings. It's like a really bad idea. Um, because the, the reason it's a bad idea is how, once again, to bring it back to our earlier discussion, how do I know that other human beings are conscious? Well, mostly by the behavioral cues that they give me right and like where our eyes are on our heads where our mouths are the ways we socially engage with one another all of those things so if we make ai that mimics us in that way we're going to feel a sense of moral concern for them however if we don't understand their motivations and intentions there's a an issue of if who owns those systems is using them for manipulative purposes on the one hand but then also the very pressing question of are these systems really moral in their own right if we're the ones who are giving them um, our own um, flawed representations or maybe not flawed representations but we are the ones setting the standard of what counts as a moral agent and we're saying we are that standard therefore we will give you the things we have and is that our right to be able to do something like that so i think that that power that question the question of power right i think that that emerges here like do we really have the power to, to make that kind of decision. Um, some argue we don't, but even if we do, that power comes with a responsibility to acknowledge that there could be unintended consequences um, for those decisions. Yeah, and I think that plays out for me in the movie, again, through the character of Nathan and where Ava and in what circumstances Ava is created. So she, he, as the creator, is looking at her in a, in a very manipulative way, and he puts her in the space where she knows she's not necessarily going to leave. She's aware of, or it seems in the movie, that she's aware of the fact that if she doesn't function, um, like he wants her to function, her life, in quotes, is going to end. So that also brings in the question for me, like who is allowed to create these systems and in what kind of environments are we playing with consciousness? You know, like if, if there is the possibility that consciousness can arise, what should the setting be for it to arise in? And who should the people be that kind of holds the space for it to arise in that? Um, because I, I was wondering a lot about whether the movie would have been different if someone with a, I suppose a better um, moral compass created her. Would she then have reacted differently? Was her actions predetermined by her creator's way of creating her? Um, which was very interesting to me. Yeah, so, so the, the one thing that, that um, this question of who is allowed to do what in AI research, and so this is just to bring it back to, to sort of actual things, and then we, I'll, I'll link it to the film. Um, I mean, 
who can create these systems? Well, people who own the information, right? That's how it works. Because what, what, if you look at the film, how is Ava created, right? She was created by a Google-like entity, right? Yeah. And Google. the information, yeah, but Blue? Blue Book or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah, the Blue name. That's, that's that was it. the name, yeah. But he basically used, um, I think, the data from Facebook or, or Google searches. They say like search, search engine and then he created Blue Book, which was her brain. The, the accumulation of all the data. Mm. Basically. Yeah, so you can see like easy parallels, right? Mm. But the, the issue here is that Ava is being created with a repository of human interactions online, right? That's what seemed to be her, let's call it her source code. Um, that's what's being used. So the first question is, well, who can create such systems? Well, only one very particular kind of entity is going to be able to do this, right? And that's an entity that has access to such massive amounts of data. So the who should be allowed to question doesn't even emerge, right? Because it's not, we, we, that's not a question we can ask right now because only a certain group can. Um, and if they can, they probably will because that's sort of how this kind of thing is driven. But the, the really strange thing, which wasn't explored in the film, I, I don't think, um, to my knowledge, this didn't happen. And I think it's an interesting question is from this, the, the, the source data, the source code that was actually used, how was it actually curated in order to create something like Ava, right? We, we see instances of past dolls in, in this cupboard, right? That I think were previous iterations of Ava, but we don't really know. And we see their brains as well. There's like a museum thing where you can see um, the sort of brains and but we don't know how the tree was trimmed right what kind of things were taken out what information was left out because I think often we think about you know what are the positive necessary conditions for an entity to be able to engage in this kind of conversation and whatever but more often than not it's about what we leave out that matters the most right so was Ava gendered in this very specific way I don't think she was gendered in a way that things were added in, but more so that certain things were not put in, right? Because we have the knowledge, we're here talking about these things. So the information exists, but it must be left out to give you a certain kind of outcome. Um, yeah, I think, well, they allude to that where um, at the end, Caleb confronts Nathan and he asks her, did you, why was I ch chosen when he figures out that actually he was the subject of the study and Ava wasn't the subject. And then Nathan's says that he used um, Caleb's porn search to create certain aspects of her character and her features and things like that. So that was very interesting to me that you can then curate a specific bot to act in a way for a specific purpose to manipulate a specific person. But then also what you said about leaving out and bringing the body back into this, if these systems are created with data and that functions online, it leaves out the interactions that we have when we are physically together. And we know as beings that experience that when I am face-to-face -face in the same space as you, there's other interactions and other ways of being than being on Zoom as we are now. So what is left out if we're using data that humans function online and not physical data? And then how does that have an influence on the experience of the body and physical interactions? Yeah, and that is almost, like you say, almost a disembodied, um, the, the, the data almost um, represents a very disembodied way of understanding human consciousness. What was interesting also is that the choice that um, when, when or Caleb asked Ava, like, what would she do if she gets out and she says she wants to go to a, a robot, 
or like an intersection, a traffic intersection and watch people. And that was funny because, okay, in South Africa's context, it's even funnier because we call traffic lights robots. <laughs> but, um, but it was also interesting. It, it was, or I interpreted it as commentary on this type of data mining and surveillance culture that, you know, this is kind of a, a place where you can watch all these different people and the, 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 the fact that she wanted to watch and surveil and that's almost how she was coded to be, like you said, it's about those micro expressions or something like that. So she, she can only take it from data. So, and then she has this craving to almost see it in real life experience. If I can say it like that, she wants to not only have the data inputs, but observe it herself. So I found that like an interesting way also to think about, like you say, the, the ethical questions of data and surveillance and, and how that's also playing into our conversation about AI more generally. Well, there's, there's one, um, the fact that they use, right, his, his porn search history to give, so to give him what he wants in a sense, right, is raises a question, I think, um, which has, I think there's a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts, where they basically look at people's online porn searches and then try and identify, like, was this a, a middle-aged man who performed these searches? And they try and map, you know, what do middle-aged men like? And we have, like, there's an immense amount of data on this because it's insane how, I mean, the amount of data generated just from searches is incredible. Now, the question that arises is, in those cases, most people are performing those searches alone and anonymously, right? So it's, there's a sense in which it's a true reflection of what they want, independent of social concerns of, you know, whether you might be looked down upon by your family for wanting to indulge in this kind of activity or whatever it is, you feel comfortable searching for this thing, right? And that's the data that's being used to generate these systems. Now, the question for me that I find interesting is, is that, is that who we really are, right? Are we our internet selves when we are anonymized, when there are no social pressures? Is that a true reflection of our intentions or are we the curated versions we present to the world, right? Because there is now this disconnect between the curated version is the one that there is, there is data on it, but that data isn't often useful for massive corporations. They want our real intentions, the things that we don't tell our friends about, the things that um, they can use to guide products and to sell products to us because products that are geared towards a more primitive psychology tend to sell better. So, the question that emerges here is, is if something like Ava is being created for the purposes of what Caleb wants at this deep primal level, is it not simply, is he, is he not simply just getting what he wants and that's, that's okay because no one's really getting harmed. But our intuitions say no, something is going wrong here, very wrong. And it seems to be with the kind of data. And what I take from her going into that, that intersection is more than just surveillance and her observing, but that she acknowledges that there is a lack in the data she's been fed, right? She wants, she wants actual, I mean, she, I think Eva herself is craving this embodied encounter with others, right? Even when she encounters people in, um, when she encounters Caleb in, in the sort of setting of the bunker, there's this thing between them, you know, she's not really there. She can't be herself or interact in a fully embodied way. And I think that's what she's craving as well. Um, and that lends support to her being an actual moral agent in some sense, right? Or being worthy of some kind of moral concern. Definitely. And I think you've alluded at the um, 
conversation around mod, um, moral agent and moral patient. So maybe if you want to dive a little bit deeper into that and your studies in terms of that, if you want to, um, we can go into that conversation because I think that's a quite an interesting distinction, thinking about what makes you an agent and what makes you a patient and how we think around that. And maybe you can even bring that into the conversation with sex robots because in... Um, in this movie, we see Kyoko, who is actually, like we've said, she has an appropriate for language. She looks like a sex bot. I think she functions as a sex bot. And the interactions that she has between Nathan is related to sexuality because he's alone there. He doesn't have interactions with any other humans. So he's created these bots to satisfy his needs. Um, so I think that's an interesting jumping in point with regards to the moral agency. Yeah, so... so I should have mentioned this earlier. I'm very sorry about that. I've been talking about moral agents, but without actually disambiguating. So um, what, what the biggest, I mean, I think if you look at all ethical theories, what do they all talk about? Well, they talk about moral agents and moral patients, right? Moral patients being entities that are, we think are deserving of moral concern. You know, things like, I don't know, rabbits and other persons. You know, those are things we think are worthy of moral concern. Some people would say the environment or spaceship earth is also a moral patient, right? Something that is intrinsically valuable and deserving of moral concern. Then moral agents are those things or entities which are capable of making moral decisions and being held responsible for those decisions. So as far as we know, we are the only moral agents. Well, there's interesting cases with like police attack dogs. They're trained in a certain way. And if they miss, if they attack someone who was not a threat, is the dog themselves morally responsible well you know we don't put dogs in prison or do any of that so it seems to be like no we are the only moral agents that exist um, so the interesting relationship is that most of the time moral agents are moral patients because we are all moral patients and we are moral agents but the emergence of these these um, technological systems suggests that we could have moral agents that are not moral patients so in the case of um, I mean, the algorithm that Amazon used, you can imagine a much more complicated version of that where the designers don't actually know what's going on. It's like a black box AI. Um, who is responsible for the harm that occurs? If we can't point to the designers, we might have to throw our hands up and say, well, it's the algorithm. You know, we, we, there's no other way to um, solve the problem. And what we gain from doing that is if a family or someone was harmed, Legally, we can we then have points of um, redress. We can say, well, here is the liability lies with this algorithm. The algorithm is owned by this company. Therefore, this company owes um, X or Y individuals something. Um, but the question of Kyoko as a seemingly not a moral agent or a moral patient, right? So moral agents tend, we can give reasons for why we act. Then we get held responsible, incapable of speech. So cannot give reasons, cannot be a moral agent also seems to be incapable of showing signs of distress. So our standard conceptions of moral patiency also go out the window. However, if we have this more relational understanding of what comes to count as a moral patient, then it, it seems to me quite intuitive that Kyoko can be considered a moral patient based on how she's treated. Um, what, what's his name? The main guy. I forgot his name. Nathan. Nathan, Nathan, sorry, who's muted. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> muted now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the way that she's treated by Nathan, even though she's not a moral patient, we seem to want to have grounds to say that that is mistreatment, that that is wrong. Um, and the way that we can do this is by having this relational account, which says that it's not just about moral agents and moral patients. 
it's actually about how we come to treat things in a social setting. And these things could be embodied things like us. They could be non-embodied things like machines. Uh, what matters is how we treat them and the given social meaning we attach to them, right? So the social meaning of Kyoko is a sex robot who can be used for pleasure, right? In a very dehumanizing sense. That is not a social meaning, I think, as a society, we would say, yep, that's the thing we endorse. Let's put that in writing and let's legislate that that's how we should use these systems, right? Or at least I would hope that that's not what people would think. So I think it's more about the social meaning that we tease out about our actions, um, as opposed to just this, this binary between moral agents and moral patients. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And is there, I mean, what is the current conversation surrounding, you know, sex bots and is there like a criminalization conversation going on at the moment? Like where is the AI, um, AI scholars on this at the moment? So the, the first, the first thing to acknowledge is that this is not, um, well, well the, the film might make it seem like when we watch the film, it's like it's in the future and it's, this hasn't happened yet or whatever. No, this is happening. Right. So true companion and, um, what's the other one? Uh, Real Doll, right? Those are the two websites that I'm aware of. Real Doll is by far the most sophisticated one. You can go and you can buy a sex robot. Um, it's anthropomorphic. Um, on on Real on um, True Companion, they actually have personalities. You can pick personalities, and it is just hor horrific to go look at the preloaded types that you can get. As an example, one of them is Frigid Farah, right? And she. She is one who is not, she's not going to encourage you to, you know, physically engage with her. She might push you away. And these are now, these are, these are personalities you can pick, right? You can cycle between them. So just that's the point of this is just that this is not science fiction, right? There's, these things exist. So the current debate is not about creation. It's about regulation, right? Because creation wise, it's, it's happening. It's already there. You can order one for, I think it's $8,000. Um, so the current debate is about how do we regulate these systems? And there are a few um, people who argue there's, there's a, actually a political campaign called the Campaign Against Sex Robots, um, actively trying to stop the production and spread of these, of these um, systems because the authors believe that these, it's, it's basically the equivalent of prostitution, but being designed by men, right? Which is what prostitution was, but now you have this, this version where you don't even need to worry about the ethical concern of those who are being used and the, the kind of gendered identities that might be used to motivate that kind of project are, are horrible. Well, quite frankly, they're horrible, right? Um, so there's that, that case where you say, nope, um, these we should not encourage or have, it's not about regulation, it's about an outright ban. Um, then there are those who sort of are, are more sort of uh, individualistic kind of bent who would say, no, no, it's if I, buy this property, I own this system, and we should give people kind of what they want. What they do in their own, in their own homes is not um, necessarily ref a reflection of how they would treat others. So having a sex bot at home um, doesn't necessarily mean you will be less of a moral agent in your public life. So why should we t legislate on that matter um, when we allow for people to, I mean, we don't legislate on what porn you can and can't watch. So why should we legislate on the type of um, sex robot you should own. However, I do think that this, that kind of distinction doesn't map properly. And the, the one thing I think John Danaher makes this point, and he's like 
I think, one of the most clear-headed thinkers on these kinds of issues. He says we have things that he calls so incorrigible social moral norms. And he says they are, those are the kinds of things that even if they're done in public, I mean in private, they're not okay. Um, and so I'll put a trigger warning, I guess, in here because the example I'm going to use does concern um, an instance of sexual violence. Um, but this emerged in the in the 80s. There was a game called Rayplay, which was basically about like it's, it was very pixelated, but it was a, the whole point of the game was to find a, you find a native um, a Native American woman, I think it was, and then the point of the game is to then rape her. Right, that was the point of the game. Now this game was banned immediately. Everyone said, no, this is horrible. Don't do this. And I think that was the appropriate response. But the question it raises is, in the case of murder, right, we have, we have first-person shooters where you can go around and kill people um, online. Those, murder doesn't elicit the same kind of response that um, Rayplay did. And I think the reason for that is that they track different moral intuitions. Whereas in the murder case, artificial murder or killing through a screen and real murder, there is an important difference between the two and there's a moral difference. Whereas in the case of sexual violence, it doesn't seem like that tracks. An artificial version of it is just as good or bad as the real thing and deserves the same amount of moral condemnation because the mere act of thinking about such a thing is itself a kind of morally laden, um, not quite decision, but at least um, morally laden, it has morally laden content. So I think there, there is an important difference between the two, which means that we can actually get stronger arguments for banning and regulation and not just like, you know, give people what they want, which is a horrible thing. You should never give people what they want. People want horrible things all the time. <laughs> I mean, as like horrific as some of these examples are, it does bring ethical questions to light. Um, and I'm thinking of the concept of like normative violence, because um, it's interesting for me now how you spoke about the, the actual violence that we see if we now have to discern between real life and the virtual life. And you spoke earlier also about even, uh, you know, the virtual selves of, versus the actual selves and the type of primal needs that go with that. But I mean, there's this concept called normative violence, which speaks about how just the, the ethical way or, or the way of thinking, for example, if I use homophobic hate speech in a certain example, that could quite literally be a, a violent act, but not, and to, so say now the difference between using homophobic language and acting on that homophobic language. So committing maybe murdering someone because of their sexual orientation and to understand that there's a direct link between the type of language that is already, you know, violent in a way because of the normative. So by that, just, I mean like what you think it ought to be okay or not okay. Um, is all that 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 crime is already almost committed just in the language version of it, and it it perpetuates then also the need for some people maybe then not the need but the the, the impulse for some people to actually act on that, and so we, we cannot really separate the two, and that's interesting for me if you think about the sex bots and those type of, I mean you also cannot separate the conversation that we already have in our conversations about prostitution and sex workers and the rights of sex workers from the type of conversation we would have about sex bots. So yeah, it, it's interesting to see how they almost co coexist in a, to a certain extent. I think that there's a weird thing that happens here where, um, I think this was, um, Nicolene might have mentioned this earlier, but 
we have um, these systems that confront us and we think we need new ethical apparatus. Like we need a new way to understand them. But really, we don't need a new way. We have, we have these, prob like these problems that um, emerging technologies give us. We've had them for a long time. Right? They're, 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 there's a reason we call them systemic. Right? And they're, they're faults of ours right, as, as human beings that we're trying to work out. And the technologies simply shine light on those faults in different ways. So the issues of, of, of sex workers and, you know, gender-based violence, and all of those things, these inform the way we understand sex robots and for good reason. But what it really shows us is that it's not the sex robot itself that is at issue here. It's the kind of mentality that gives rise to such a thing wanting to be made in the first place, right? And those social conditions are the things we want to challenge. And once again, those are systemic things. They're not superficial, you know, airy-fairy philosophical issues all the time, although they, they could be, but at a very deep level, they are, you know, at the root of what is systemically wrong with our society. Um, so there, there's a sense in which I think one could look at the development of sex robots um, as giving, I guess, uh, it's kind of prescriptive, right? If you're making a sex robot look and behave in a certain way, you're kind of prescriptively saying this is the way one ought to act if one wants, um, I don't know, pleasure from men. That seems to be the implicit assumption here because this is what men want. Mm -hmm. So in the same way where you had women in, um, you know, at the height of like Cosmopolitan's um, reach before, you know, the age of digital media, women were represented in a very specific way. And that has a feedback loop where you see representations of that in the media and then you go out and behave in that way because you think that's what correct form of engagement is and sex robots represent like that to the nth degree almost yeah and I, something that is coming up for me now as well that was really interesting for me in the movie is the is this kind of pivotal moment where um eva is now released and she's in the house and nathan realizes and then there's that interaction between eva and kyoko where eva kind of activates kyoko to do something that is immoral to kill Nathan and, and they kind of work together in that and then she walks past the room where Caleb is and he sees her outside for the first time and the glass is not there anymore and then she tells him stay there and the reason he obeys that is in the anticipation of having sex with her essentially that is what it is they have this intimacy through the or that's what I think it is that's how I perceive that they have this intimacy when they in the conversation with each other and in the test, but there's this wall between them. And there's that desire from her side to interact. And then she uses that desire to interact and go out in the world to actually like project that onto his desire to also interact with her. And then she, she gets herself ready and he's able to look at her, how she puts on her skin and she prepares her body and she even puts on a white dress. So it even plays out that whole role of like marrying this guy or then in the end you realize she's actually like marrying the world or interacting with the world outside. But that moment of telling him stay there where he could have rationally now thought about, I don't really know how this bot is going to react when she goes out in the world. Maybe I should rather contain her in the space and she, see how she interacts only with me in the space. But he obeys her in this anticipation that is built up by her sexuality and by the way she was programmed to manipulate him with her gender. So I, that was also an interesting 
illustration in the movie of how things like this can play out. And then another interesting movie, again, spoiler alert, is Her. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen Her, but it's this guy that buys a... Um, he, he buys like a, an operating system that you can listen to in your ear and she organizes the world for you and everything. But then he falls in love with her and he, in the whole movie, he can't see her, but it's all in the sexual tension and it's Scarlett Johansson's voice. So it's very sexual. So there's this, this tension and, and the way that she speaks to him and they then fall in love. And then he realizes in later in the movie that she acts in a way that he can't understand. She has relationships with so many people because she's an operating system. So she has fallen in love and she says that she experiences eroticism and experiences this relationship between the other men as well. But it just, he just can't understand that. It's not in his frame of, of reference for her to have 600 relationships all over the world and not show up physically. So that's also, it's an interesting thing where our sexuality and our understanding of gender and our understanding of the roles and how they play out actually becomes something that really um, uh, makes us act not rationally sometimes. I mean, think in Caleb's situation, that's very clearly illustrated. I think that the first thing that sort of um, strikes me is in light of that, that kind of discussion, right, where what we seem to be saying is that these, these roles are things that we don't find out there in the world. We put them into the world, right? That, that's, that's how the causal mechanism works. And if that's the case, then we should, right, the social meanings we attach to these things becomes even more ethically um, important because people will see them and they will then think that this is the way things ought to be. Mm -hmm. um, so specifically in the case of, of um, Ava's very sexualized identity, it's, I don't know, her suggestively sort of like beckoning him or like, you know, the, the, whole, the cinematography of that last bit is actually, that's also suggestive, right? The whole way it's framed, it's not just her action, it's the way, I don't know, the camera like, you know, pans in on her and how she's getting dressed, there's all of that. And I think that speaks to the sort of, um, and I haven't watched the movie Her, but what I get from it is, is that there's the sense of, um, there's an imaginative aspect to our own sense of what we desire um, in others, whether they be machine or, or um, flesh and blood. And this imaginative aspect comes into conflict with controlling others. So if you look at the history of, of I mean, our own sort of sordid history of male domination, I often think men are, have historically been more concerned with controlling the movement of women than they have been concerned with their own thinking, right? And it's this, this, this um, the, the tension between controlling the object of desire or the subject of desire and imagination that we see playing out in the film quite extensively. Because um, Caleb is in, he's not in control, he wants to understand, um, but Nathan is fully in control. He decides, everything. Um, and as soon as that control is sort of unexpected or there's an uncertainty, that's where we as the viewer sort of get roped in and we think, oh, maybe Ava does or is deserving of a kind of moral concern. It's when we can't fully predict her behavior. Mm. Um, and that's weird that it plays out like that. I think that's quite interesting in light of just gender representation in general. Yeah. And just to touch on that, because you mentioned the cinematography, um, we in film studies and visual studies, we studied the um, heteronormative gaze and how a lot of what happens in films in the past was set up with the expectation that male 
heterosexuals are watching the movie and the way that it's often done in terms of controlling the female body is to film and if i now play i'm gonna describe the scene and every single listener will be able to identify with this there's a woman you can't see her entire body. She's slowly putting on stockings, but you only see the stockings or taking off the stockings. And then you see her arm and she's slowly taking off something. So there's this kind of cutting the female body into manageable parts, not showing it as a whole. And what was interesting is it was kind of flipped in the movie um, Ex Machina, where the first time Ava kind of does this where she's aware that Caleb can see her is where she's still in the enclosed um, in her cell essentially and you can see her entire machine body but she's performing the same acts she's slowly putting on her socks covering up her machine leg slowly putting on the dress covering up and I thought that was an interesting flip and then at the end of the movie they kind of deconstruct her body where she's putting on her skin and then you only see her body in like manageable as form. So there's this as anticipation that's created in the second scene that something is going to happen. And it's very cleverly done, like you say, through the way that it was filmed, because that's how we recognize. And like you say, that's how we've been taught. That's how things play out in the real world, the way that it's been filmed like that for ages and ages. It's interesting then, um, and I mean, our conversation shifted a little bit from like the ethical concerns to also just how how Ava, Ava is almost like this contrast from a feminist studies, pers film studies perspective, like on the one hand, it's this like man-eating, femme fatale type of thing where you almost want to root for Ava and be like, it's this like badass bot and she's just gonna, she's almost like destroying the patriarchy, um, a little bit that type of figure. Um, and then, and then where you also, you're confronted with like, am I not supposed to root for Caleb? Because he's now like trapped and, and we could also associate with him a lot. And then there's also this interpretation that sees the movie or like a feminist interpretation as almost post-feminist, post-gender, where she is, she is merely like doing these performances. Um, but we are not, we don't get to see the, the actual Ava or how she, if Ava had to now consciously um express herself i mean she does choose to put on that um dress and and play into it but we are constantly confronted with that um is it she's choosing it she's just performing it or is this now is there an essence or a real ava that we will get to meet somehow or that will exist after she leaves um and i think that comes down to that Turing test thing in, in the movie the whole time and that we spoke of in the beginning with with AI and, and it leaves it vague enough that we still kind of, we are not sure and also what do we then prefer? Are we, it challenges us because in a way we are rooting for her and some people might be rooting for Caleb in, in different ways that then like puts the mirror back onto us again. Yeah, I, the, the, the one thing or like a, a sort of um, a way to sort of tease out the two views, right, um, are, and this is, this kind of tracks uh, uh, academically, right, we have people who believe in transhumanism and posthumanism. Now, transhumanism has nothing to do with, with gender. It's specifically about the fact that it's basically an extension of this enlightenment idea that um, human beings are the sole source of meaning in the world and we will continue to be that, and we can ratchet technology in order to achieve greater levels of enlightenment. 
while maintaining some kind of humanistic essence at our key at, at our base right whereas post-humanism which is reflected in more sort of like literary movements suggests that no we need to get beyond what it is to be human this human essence we've been trying to figure out doesn't exist it never has it's an illusion and in order to make proper moral progress we must get beyond humanity and this then calls for you know machine others and it calls for um, a way of thinking outside and beyond streamlined enlightenment rational um, and i mean rational with like a capital r um, kinds of kinds of thinking and scholars are split between which kind of thing we should endorse but at the end of the day where the goal of this kind of research will determine which kind of research we think is okay or not right if, if one is a post-humanist there is a sense in which um, leaving behind vestiges of our old evolutionary past or historical past are great right we must be more than what we have been um, but for a transhumanist there they are concerns about maintaining this kind of rationality that have guided us thus far and being skeptical of other for other ways of thinking um, because they might limit our ability to reach um, sort of the regulative ideal of enlightenment um, so I think that's also like an interesting lens I guess to to map onto or to at least explain why people might be rooting for Nathan because there's a sense in which that's us we are humans why would we want our own demise but these two positions allow us to say, yeah, well, we might want our own demise in a sort of conceptual sense, right? The, the death of what humanity was might actually be a really good thing um, going forward and ethically speaking. I want to be mindful of your time. So, um, Jana, if you have a closing thought, lovely. Um, and, and also then invite you to, um, Fabio, share your closing thoughts and uh, maybe plug yourself in some places where we could find you and read more about what you say. Um, yeah, it's been a really interesting discussion. So share some last ideas with us. So, I mean, yeah, in closing, I guess, um, I, I think I've said everything, I said a lot, said a lot, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. A, a lot has been covered. Um, but in, in closing, though, the real thing I, wanna, I want to sort of stress is that, once again, often these things can seem very abstract and, you know, like what's the real world implication of these things. But my view is that we are seeing the real world implications of them now. We are living through the real world implications. Um, data privacy, um, the internet, these are, these are changing what it means to be human. They are changing the ways in which we engage with the world. And it's not this change is not just at the level of changing what the world looks like, but it is changing how the world appears to us mm. and changing how other people appear to us. Um, so those are incredibly important ethical, ethically laden um, things. And my view is that we need to be very mindful of them. Um, so that, that's all I'm gonna say on that. Then to, to plug myself, I guess, um, I have a blog which I'm sure there'll be a link to mm -hmm. somewhere, um, yes. which people can go and see if they want to read about the things I say. And then on there, um, you can find further information on my research group. I'm also a research associate at CARE, which is the Center for Artificial Intelligence Research in South Africa, which if anyone who is in academia or studying as a student once, um, they, they provide funding for masters and PhD students who are interested in ethical um, questions that arise from AI, that's a really good place to um, find more information on that. Then I'm also a, a consultant at Ethical Intelligence, 
which is a sort of a startup that looks at nascent technology, especially in fintech industry, and tries to provide um, ethical guidelines for best practice, for the use of information, and for how we design um, such artificial systems. Awesome. Thank you so much, Fabio. It's been such a pleasure. And I think this will be definitely a conversation that, that, can, that can and must um, continue. So, yeah, thank you so much for, for joining us with this conversation. Yeah, thank, yeah, thank you, you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your thoughts. And yeah, I agree that it's a very important conversation that should continue. So thank you for your hard work and also considering these issues that our future depend on. Just a few more things before we sign off. We are so grateful that you listened to the public airing of our thoughts. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. Rate and review us if you enjoy our content. This way you help us by making it easier for other listeners to find us. As always, we would love to hear what you think about the concepts, theories, texts and practices discussed in this podcast. So please reach out to us either through Instagram at Eret underscore podcast, through our Eret podcast Facebook page, or via email at eritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all these links in the show notes below. If you would like to get a short email from us sharing resources, related content, and any other fun stuff that we don't share in the podcast, please go to our website at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it and subscribe. If you are interested in supporting this project, you can also do so at nbcollective.space forward slash air hyphen it. And remember, just like laundry, sometimes putting those stuffy ideas out in the air can help freshen them out. Until next time, stay stimulated. stimulated.